Well, good morning. I'm excited about what's going on. I'm excited about 2020. We as a staff got together over the weekend and spent 24 hours with each other. We didn't kill each other or nothing like that. We had an awesome time, and we think God's really moving in us and through us, and we're excited about what's ahead. And so uh, I I was blessed by last week's message. How many was blessed by the message? If you didn't hear it, go hear it. And when I left here, I was all fired up, and then I thought, wait a minute, i got to preach next week after that, right? And I thought, how am I going to compete with that? Because I can't jump on the first row. I need somebody to have to help me up to get up to those chairs, right? And then if I did, I, you know, my extended family and friends are in the second row. I'd probably fall on top of them. We'd be kind of embarrassing. So I thought, you know, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do today, which is kind of crazy. But I'm going to look at, uh, uh, you know, the passage uh, that Jason read was really good, but I want to add a passage to that. I want you to get in John 1. And we're going to look at uh, Jesus calling his disciples. And in verse 35, it says, The next day Jesus was standing with two of his, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist, just to clue you in, right? And he looked at Jesus as he was walking by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now I want you to realize that this wasn't just some little comment that he made. Hey, look, the, the two guys that are with him today, Behold, the Lamb of God, like that. We, we just don't read the way it was written in English, right? Really, it was, Behold. It was a proclamation, the Lamb of God, which is why we have that exclamation point at the end of the statement, right? John just makes a bold statement as he sees Jesus walking, and immediately it says that the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, he asks a great question. What are you seeking? Not who are you seeking, what are you seeking? And I'd ask you this morning the same question. What are you seeking when you follow Jesus? Are you looking for a good luck charm or a genie to rub to get what you want? Are you looking to get out of hell card? What are you looking for when you follow Jesus? It's a great question. And notice we don't get an answer. I think that's purposeful. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teachers, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Isn't it interesting? He followed Jesus. Jesus found people who would then go and find people. He immediately goes to his brothers. How many of us can immediately go to our families today and say, let me tell you something, I found Jesus. Let me tell you all about him. Sometimes families, the hardest people to witness to. And the question is, is because they don't see the transformation in you? Do they not see Jesus visibly in you? Does that mean you shouldn't do it anyways? No. I love what he says, Jesus says, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. In other words, he's saying, you are Simon, which kind of means the wavering one. He says, you're going to be called Peter, which means rock. Because Jesus transforms lives when people follow him. Makes sense, right? The next day, they decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael. Again, Jesus found people who found people. 
We have found him who Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him sort of sarcastically, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Notice Jesus doesn't even respond to that question. He knows he's asking it. Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God! Exclamation point. You are the King of Israel! Exclamation point. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting? Jesus goes after people. And the people he goes after, guess what they do? They go after people. The question this morning is, who's your one? Who are you going after? If you've been found by Jesus, the natural inclination of a heart that is set aside for Christ is to go find others and tell them about their Christ. The problem with us is sometimes I think that we're prone to think one is too small of a number, right? Nobody wants one or a cookie. You got to have all sleeve, right? (laughs) Nobody can eat one laced potato chip, right? We know that. What's really one dollar worth? What's a penny worth? I mean, when I was growing up, a penny was actually worth something. You could actually buy something with a single penny. It's amazing. The Bible consistently speaks of the power of one. One pearl, that great price. One sheep that was lost in spite of the 99 that weren't. One wayward son that makes his way back to God. The power of one Today, I think disciples of Jesus often overlook the value of one, that one invitation to church, that one message of hope, that one family member, that one friend, that one coworker, that one individual they meet randomly on the street, that they need Jesus. It's interesting. We overlook the value of one. Here's our problem. Here's a story that illustrates this. True story. About 21 years ago in Chicago, it's hard to believe this happened, but a guy named Christopher Searcy was playing basketball with his friends on May 16, 1998, when he was shot in the chest with a, and the bullet perforated his artery. His friends helped him to get within 40 feet of the entrance of Ravenswood Hospital. And they ran in and asked for help, and the hospital staff had a policy, and they refused to help Christopher, saying that it was against the hospital policy to administer aid to those outside the hospital. Hard to believe. Eventually, a policeman was able to get a wheelchair and wheeled Christopher into the hospital. He was able to get help by the staff. However, it was too late. An hour later, Christopher died. Many times it seems that churches are surrounded by people that desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet Christians are content to share it only with those who manage to come in to the church. And did you hear that? It's as if the importance of one is for the church and not the individual believer. That's why Billy Graham once said, and I love the quote, he says, the church used to be a force for the gospel. Now it is a field for the gospel. Can you hear that? 
It's a field for the gospel. And it means that the church needs the gospel as much as the outside world because you know what? We're not a force anymore for the gospel. To me, we've got to commit to being intentional witnesses. It's got to be something that we commit to do. It's not just going to happen by chance or by osmosis. It's only going to happen when we intentionally say, I am going to find my one. Who's your one this morning? And when you make that commitment, we need some accountability. You need to get somebody that's going to hold you accountable. Because when somebody's holding you accountable, you're more likely to do it. And then you need to surround yourself with people that are going to infuse truth and encouragement into your life so that while you're doing it, you can grow as a disciple who will make disciples who make disciples. Make sense? That's our mission. It's to go and tell each disciple, each church follower invites one unchurched, unsaved person to lunch, dinner, or breakfast, and you tell them your gospel story. You can't refute your story. It is truth how Jesus changed your life. That's all you got to do. If not, invite a whole family and designate one person in your family to tell them your story. And if all else fails, bring them to church where they'll hear the gospel and the story and the good news about Jesus Christ. We have to go and tell. Each one needs to bring one. It's simple. And I think that when you talk about the Apostle Paul, I'm going to read two passages with you, and I want you to see what Paul thinks we should be in the midst of the world when Jesus Christ has transformed our hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrant fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ, of God, to among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one fragrance from death to death, to another fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Is that true of you? The next chapter, he follows it up by saying, you yourselves are the letter of our recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. You get this impression that those that have been captured by Christ should be out in the world and should be a fragrant aroma of Jesus Christ to all around them. And they should see the power of God written on their hearts. Because you've been transformed. It should be natural for us. To me, the problem is that we have to recognize and repent of excuses. The first excuse we need to recognize is that spiritual lethargy. It takes place when we fail to obey the word of God. The lack of growth inevitably leads to diminished desire to share Christ with others. We have to remember the sermon is not just to give us more knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's to call us to greater obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should leave here fired up to find someone and tell them about the greatness of God. It shouldn't be something that we keep to ourselves. It should be something that works in ourselves and for the benefit of those around us. That's the beauty of the gospel. The Bible said it's better to obey than to sacrifice. Have you been obedient to your calling? 
Have you been obedient to God's desire to love others through you? Who's your one? Do you have one? Are you praying for the one? Are you looking for ways to love that one? The next excuse is growing inclusiveness. There's this prevalent thought that all religions lead to God. Christianity is just another one, that salvation can be found in good religions. It's a subtle belief that somehow good followers make it to heaven outside the true Christian faith. And here's the deal, people. Everybody is God's creation, but not everybody is God's child. Right? The only way you're a child of God is to be born again through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ via the cross. He shed his blood for your and my sins so that we can be forgiven and have a relationship and eternal life in his Father. That's the only way you get to heaven. That's the only way you can actually be good because it's not you being good. It's Jesus working in you, right? It's interesting because we all want to think that everybody's a good person and all good people go to heaven. It's just a lie. The next one that goes along with it just as bit is the disbelief in hell. To me, the, the disbelief in hell undermines the urgency of placing one's faith in Christ alone. One must escape the wrath of God, and Jesus is the only refuge for that. John MacArthur said people do not have to do something to go to hell. They just have to do nothing to go to hell. Billy Sunday said if there's no hell, many a good preacher are obtaining money under false pretense. And the best one, I think, is from Josh McDowell. He says, a lot of people say, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? First of all, God doesn't send anyone to hell. If we go to hell, it's by our own choice. But when someone says to me, how can a loving God allow someone to go to hell? I turn and say, well, how can a holy, just, righteous God allow sin into his presence? Hell exists. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody in the Bible. Because he wanted us to know there's a consequence for decisions we make in life or the lack thereof. Hell is real. And it should be a motivator for us. There's also this fear, this fear of rejection. To me, people worry about what people are going to say or what they're going to think or what they're going to do. It's sort of like that little boy who goes to the dinner table, mom had invited the neighbors off her, and she was kind of prim and proper. And then the little boy before the meal starts said, Hey, mom, is it okay to eat bugs? And the mom said to the little boy, said, son, it's not polite to talk about things like that at the dinner table. So the little boy said, okay, didn't say anything. They had dinner. When dinner was over, the mom said, son, what was it that you wanted to talk about? He said, oh, never mind, mom. You had a bug in your soup, and now it's gone. (laughs) Sometimes we're afraid to tell people the truth because we're afraid the way they're going to act and react to us, not recognize that research shows that one in four... One and four unchurched persons will be resistant to faith discussions. That means 75% are open. Three out of four will be open to discussion about faith. And those, that one, those 25% that are not, that are sort of antagonistic, is because of things in their life and where they stand with God, not you. Another thing that keeps us from giving the gospel is busyness. We also know the word busy means being under Satan's yoke. And we have to recognize as a church that we need to tell the unchurched about Jesus. We need to make it a priority in our to-do list. Let me ask you a question this morning. On your to-do list, where does evangelism stand? Is it, is it even on your list? And if it is, praise God. If it's not, you need to get it there. Let me tell you something. There's also this desire to be tolerant. We want to be accepted the gospel, in some sense, is intolerant, isn't it? 
When you look at the three major religions, they're all intolerant. They all think it's the only way to go to heaven. Why should we be ashamed when we know it's the truth and we're trying to be exclusive by inviting them in? To me, the Christian message speaks of a narrow way. It speaks of no other name under which heaven but man could be saved, and it's Jesus. It is the good news. It's not intolerant. Another one is losing the habit of witnesses. For many reasons, we've quit witnessing. Some of us have been damaged and hurt. I talked to my light last week where I was underneath the car. It really looks bad. It's all mangled and everything else. But guess what? When I turn it on, the light still shines. I know a lot of you have been hurt, but that's no reason not to shine your light. Don't let the, the cares of the world and the wounds of the world stop you from helping somebody else who has their own wounds and needs to hear the message. To me, Jesus, the Bible says, has sort of deposited the gospel in you. And the question for you this morning, the question for all of us is, what is the return on his investment? What is he getting back for what he's given and continues to give and continues to nurture? I think the problem why we don't have that return is that there's this lack of accountability. To me, when you have somebody holding you accountable, it can increase your zeal for witnessing. It can help you to have that courage that maybe you don't have individually. To me, one of the other big ones is just the failure to invite. Did you know that 20%, one in five, people will invite another church person to church, another saved person to church. Isn't that amazing? One in five will invite somebody who already knows Jesus to come to church. There's nothing wrong with that. But let me say this. Only 2% will invite someone who's unchurched and lost the church. 2%. That means out of 100 Christians, if we have 200 in this church, that means only four of you are out there witnessing and really working on your one. Boy, that's really bad, isn't it? And I don't want to be too convicting, but it's pathetic, really. Two out of every hundred. When's the last time you invited somebody to church? The other problem is the church is just not intent on reaching the lost. It takes 85 church members across the country in the Southern Baptist Convention, 85 people to reach one unsaved person. Can you believe that? 85 believers to reach one. That is really bad. It doesn't, it doesn't reminisce to me that, you know, the, 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 the second Corinthians about being the aroma or the fragrance. It doesn't speak to that. Charles Peace, who was a notorious criminal in England back in the 1879, was uh, right before his execution, the Anglican minister half-heartedly read to him from the consolation of religion. Here's what it read. Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is a pain of forever dying without the release of death itself can bring. It's a pretty awesome, ominous statement, isn't it? And here's what he said, Charles. He said, he stopped the minister and said, hey, sir, if I believe what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered in broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees, because I think it worthwhile for the living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Is that how you feel when it comes to your one? That you're willing to walk over, crawl over glass to bring the eternal message of Jesus Christ to that person who is in jeopardy 
is in peril of going to a place called hell. I want you to look at a passage of scripture that always stirs my heart. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, I mean, though we walk in this world in our bodies, we are not waging war according to the flesh. First of all, I want you to recognize we're at war. We are at a spiritual war. Everything that is seen and unseen happens when we look at what's going on all around us that we can't see. We're at war. The Bible tells us. It's not a game. It's not a sport. It is something that has consequence. And hear me now. It has something that has consequence for lack of participation. When you fail to participate, there are consequences for yourself and for everybody around you. We're at war. Nobody's neutral in this war. He goes on to say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, we, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul is telling us that we have spiritual weapons that equip us not just to maintain the status quo, but to get victory, to take down strongholds. And their prayer, it's the word of God, it's the Holy Spirit as we obey. He goes on in 5 and say, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, there's a lot of people out there with arguments about God. Is he real? Is there is a God? You know, is Christianity the true religion? Was Jesus who he said he was? There's all these arguments. And it says there's these lofty opinions out there. But guess what? They can't stand in spiritual warfare against the power of God. When we're out there doing the work of God. When we're living in the spirit, it means controlling our mind unto obedience. Thoughts are powerful, aren't they? Thoughts, they can help you and encourage you. But thoughts can also harm you, can't they? Proverbs 23.7 says, For as a man thinketh, so he is. In other words, the way we think, the thoughts in our mind, what's controlling our mind determines who we are. How's your thought life? How do you think about witnessing? How do you think about the gospel when you're all alone and it's just you in your mind? What are you thinking about? Are you presented, and when you're presented with an opportunity to give the gospel, what goes through your mind? What's controlling your mind? And when it comes to saying and preaching the good news to somebody who needs to hear it, is it fear? Is it your insufficiency? What is it? To me, when we control our minds with that of Jesus Christ, we have his power that will guide us and direct us. The most important question today is who is controlling your mind? Proverbs 16.33 said, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Isn't that cool? In other words, when you control your mind, you're more powerful than somebody that conquers a city. It's a difficult thing. How many times when you're sitting there by yourself, not thinking about anything, a thought comes in your mind going, how did that get in here? Huh? It happens to all of us. Isaiah 26 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Where is your mind this morning? Is Christ controlling your mind this morning? Because if he is, you're going to be that fragrant offering, that aroma that brings people to you. 
We must recognize the problems with our minds. And it says here the strongholds that we just read about are conquered. When we use the spiritual gifts that God give us, those weapons. See, here's the problem when we witness. People's minds are being held captive. We have to recognize that, right? First of all, people's minds, when they don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says our minds are at enmity with God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it can't. So people that don't know Jesus, they're, they're hostile to God. They're God's enemy, in essence. And you know what? They can't obey the gospel, it says. They're in peril. First Colossians says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, that's where we all were, we were all alienated from God. We were all hostile in mind. We were at enmity with God. We have to recognize there's a world out there that's being held captive and their minds are hostile to God. Such a mind will not obey God because it won't believe in God. It, it, it minds the things of the flesh. And the Bible warns against this kind of mind that it's dominated by selfish desires. It's dominated by the, the God of this world, the devil. Two. There's the blinded mind. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Did you know that the devil has supernatural powers to blind the minds of people? To keep them from seeing the gospel? Because it's a war! It's a war, and we have to be willing soldiers in that war to triumph the gospel of Jesus Christ because people are in peril. They're held captive. Their minds are at enmity with God. Their minds are blinded by uh, the devil. We must understand that those captives need to be set free. Did you ever talk to somebody when you give them the gospel? All of a sudden they say, wow, I never realized that. Or all of a sudden the light went on. Or all of a sudden it all made sense to me. Because God unblinded them. They were being held captive until the power of the gospel came into their life. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to break captives free, to unleash the mind, and for it to stay on the truth of God. And we need to be those truth bearers. We need to find our one. We have the message that people need Jesus to set their minds free. Whoever Jesus sets free is free indeed. Is that correct? And he'll do it for you right now. All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask and he will set you free. There's the mind that's at enmity with God. There's a mind that's blinded. There's also the doubtful mind. Romans 14, 14, 22 says, but whoever has doubts is condemned. James 1 says, he has a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Did you ever meet somebody who can never make a decision? Is on one, one moment they're here and one moment, the moment they're there. They're good for nothing. They're confused. They have doubts about God's word, God's truth, and what it means for their lives, and they need to see that it's real. Then you got a mind that enmity with God, you got a mind that is blinded, you got a mind that is doubtful, and then you got a mind that's defiled. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Today we see that with all kinds of different things, right? Drugs, alcohol, you know, addictions of all kinds. People with just the wrong thinking. Their minds are defiled on what they think about God. We got to change that. 
We got to bring the motions of truth. To me, I'm not trying to say that you, you don't get evil thoughts in your minds, right? Everybody gets them. But it's sort of like Billy Graham said, it's sort of like birds that fly over your head. You can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from nesting in your hair, can't you? You can't prevent yourself from letting and meditating on those thoughts and, and just chewing on those thoughts. You've got to get rid of them. You've got to take everything obedient to Christ, is what Corinthians tells us. You must choose who controls your mind. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The gate is the cross. The gate is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that makes all things possible, right? Doesn't Romans tell us that we are the power of God unto salvation? Jesus. He goes on in the next few verses and says, I'm unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be ashamed? It means to, be, to, it means for, to fear to do something or to be reluctant to do it. Sometimes because of embarrassment or humiliation. It's amazing. We will talk about anything and everything but the gospel to people, isn't it? The gospel overcomes the mind that is at enmity with God, the mind that is blinded, the mind that is doubtful, the mind that is deceitful, the gospel overcomes it all. The gospel is the power unto the salvation of those who are lost. Without it, they're doomed. They're in peril. But thank God there's another mind the scripture talks about. So there is the mind that is an enemy, the mind that is blinded, the mind that is doubtful, the mind that is deceitful. But praise God, there's the mind that is renewed. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Isn't that awesome? When we bring the gospel to people, their minds can be renewed. They can be saved from that hostility, from that doubt, from that blindness, from that deceitfulness. They can be saved, the Bible says. They can have their sins forgiven. And for the first time, possess a mind that is in right standing with the way God sees the world. Isn't it interesting when Jesus, you know... uh, exercised all the demons from that one man when the townspeople came back in, what they noticed was that he was in his right mind. Who's controlling your mind? Who's controlling your mind to think about how you see your one? Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross at Calvary for the forgiveness of sins so he can make a way for us to know what it means to be in right mind and what that looks like, to see the world as he created it to be seen, to understand the forces that are working the world, both in the spiritual and in the physical world. God raised Jesus from the dead, hallelujah, and he's alive and he's committed to working with you in your life so that others may see his love for them. Now, you don't have to worry. He gives you a helper, the Holy Spirit, 
Yes, you'll still sin, but when you do, he'll convict you of your sin. You'll confess your sin, and you'll be right where you need to be with God. Ephesians 4 says this, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The mind of Christ can, through the Holy Spirit, control your mind, your thoughts, your intentions that lead to your actions if you just submit to them each and every day. You can change your mind and Christ will transform your life. That's the message of the gospel. That's what it really means. And I want to give you a little picture of that as I close. And it's a story that's really touched my heart many, many years ago. I heard a missionary from Africa tell the story. If you've heard it before, it's one that you won't mind hearing again. In the Sahel, if you put that next shot up there, it's that section up there in Africa, in the savanna of more than 4,000 miles under the Sahara Desert. In the Sahel, all the moisture comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. Can you believe that? Not for eight months. The ground cracks. Show me the next one. It gets all crackly from dryness, right? And so do your hands and feet. The wind from the Sahara pick up and the dust is thrown thousands of feet into the air. You see that? The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and they throw it and it gets in everything. It's like a fine grit. It gets inside your mouth. It gets inside your watch and it stops. The year's food, of course, must be grown in those four months and people grow sogrum or milo in small fields. October and November, these are the beautiful months. The granaries are full. The harvest has come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day. The sorghum is ground between two stones to make flour and then mush with the consistency of yesterday's cream of wheat. The sticky mush is eaten hot. They roll it into little balls between their fingers, drop into a bit of sauce, and then pop it in their mouths. The meal lies heavy on their stomachs so they can sleep. December comes and the granaries start to recede. Many families omit the morning meal. Certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. The meal shrinks even more during the March and children succumb to sickness. They don't stay well on half a meal a day. April is the month that haunts my memory. In it, you hear the babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Does that look appetizing to you? Can you flip to the next one? I think it's the cup of gruel. No, that's the making them. There you go. Then it inevitably happens. A six or seven-year-old boy comes running into father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Father looks at him and says, son, you know we don't have grain for weeks now. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut, we keep the goats. There's a leather sack hanging on the wall. I reached up and put my hand down there. Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to mommy so she can make flour and tonight our tummies can sleep. And the father stands motionless and says, son, we can't do that. And he explains that next year's, that's next year's seed grain. The only thing between us and starvation, we're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May, and when they do, the young boy watches his father take the sack from the wall and does what most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes into the field, and with tears streaming down his face, he takes that precious stone. Flip the next slide. 
seed and throws it away. He scatters it in the dirt because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything he wants with it. The act of sowing, it hurts so much that he cries. But as the African pastors say when they preach on Psalm 126 in verses 5 and 6, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in sheaves with him. To me, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can never expect to rejoice later if we're not willing to sow in tears. If we're not willing to sacrifice our pride, our intellect, our time, our treasure to further the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will never sow and rejoice for that sowing. We've got to be people who are willing to give up what we have, what's comfortable, what we think is ours or what we're entitled to and lose it for the rest of the world so they can see the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Because the world is blinded. The world's hostile to God. The world's doubtful. And the world is deceived. And if we don't bring the message, they're going to stay that way. Let me ask you this. Will you commit? Will you commit to being intentional about your one? Will you commit this morning to find somebody that will hold you accountable to your one? And would you surround yourselves with people who will help you mature as a disciple so that you can make disciples who make disciples? To me, there's no better work than that. That's the calling of the church. That's the purpose for the series, is for us to realize that if we do nothing, there are consequences in this spiritual warfare. Will you fight for your one? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so gracious to us. Lord, everyone is important to you. But, Lord, you want to work through those that you found to go and find others. Help us, Lord, to get encouraged. Help us, Lord, to get fired up. Help us to get motivated. Because, Lord, your word says you lead us in a triumphal procession. That, Lord, as we trust in you and as we obey you, we know we will have victory. Lord, you wish none shall perish. Lord, give us the fire. Give us the passion. Lord, give us tears for the lost who are on the precipice of an eternal damnation in hell. Lord, help us to care. Help us, Lord, to desire to tell the good news, to be that aroma and that fragrance that transforms lives. Meet with us now, Jesus. Convict our hearts. Help us to realize Once and again, Lord, have us a renewed spirit to go out and reach the lost for you. I just pray this in your precious name, Jesus.